Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. At Universal Orlando Resort, Universal City Walk is the epicenter of awesome. With so many great places to shop, you can take home more than just memories. Plus, restaurants at Universal City Walk offer unique dining experiences that every member of your party will enjoy, including the Toothsome Chocolate Emporium and Savory Feast Kitchen, where chefs create culinary alchemy with gourmet chocolates and artisanal milkshakes. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. Warning! Binge mode contains adult content. One of the chasers for Slytherin at this time in Hogwarts history is named one Adrian Pussy. That's it. That's all I got. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why Harry Potter fans the world over have spent the better part of 20 years talking about thick woolen socks, please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. Let me explain. The happiest man on earth would be able to use the mirror very said, like a normal mirror. That is, he would look into it and see himself exactly as he is. Does that help? Harry thought. Then he said slowly, It shows us what we want, whatever we want. Yes and no, said Dumbledore quietly. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. You, who have never known your family, see them standing around you. Ronald Weasley, who has always been overshadowed by his brothers, sees himself standing alone, the best of all of them. However, this mirror will give us neither knowledge or truth. Men have wasted away before it, entranced by what they have seen, or been driven mad, not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. The mirror will be moved to a new home tomorrow, Harry, and I ask you not go looking for it again. If you ever do run across it, you will now be prepared. It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. Remember that. Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. I'm Mally Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished feeding buckets of brandy mixed Delicious. with chicken blood to his little dragon, Milton. I live in a wooden house. <laughs> it's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Actually, in California here, the wooden structure is preferable. Mal, bless him. Look, he knows his mummy. He also knows that it's hot, but not the hottest, which means it's finally time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we'll explore every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Be you chaser, beater, keeper, or seeker. Love to be a seeker. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points slash stars only. For Binge Mode, please also follow us on Twitter at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is full of dragon rearing tips like don't do it. Don't live in a wooden house. Don't live in a wooden house. (laughs) Dragons are uncontrollable. Send them to Charlie in Romania. Dear sweet Charlie with his arm burns. On yesterday's episode of Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how friends and foes shape chapter six through ten of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And on today's episode, we are diving deep into chapters 11 through 14 of Stone. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge. As always, while those four chapters are today's 
primary focus. We will be going deep on details from all seven books. So deep. And the wider Potter canon, taking the entire series into into account from the moment our first egg hatches. So put that admirable cloak back on and use it well, because it's time to head to the tallest tower. Mel, I wonder what it's like to have a peaceful life like Ron. We may never know. Ron will figure it out. Ron will be fine. But while we're mulling that enticing hypothetical, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in chapters 11 to 14 of Sorcerer's Stone by climbing aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine of Plot, the Hogwarts Express. Chapter 11. Quidditch! Call your bookie, Minerva uh, McGonagall! The, listen, she, she's in <laughs> daily contact with the bookie as soon as she saw Harry. The Quidditch is here. The news that Harry Potter has made the team causes yet another Harry-centric sensation. What doesn't, really? Yeah. But Harry can't stop thinking about something else. Snape. Why is he limping? Good when question. Harry goes to the staff room to ask Snape to return his confiscated copy of Quidditch Through the Ages, he walks in on Snape showing Filch a nasty leg wound and begins to suspect that Snape tried to get past the three-headed dog. Harry's first Quidditch match is marred by a small thing of someone trying to kill him. <laughs> someone using dark magic trying to throw him from his broom. Real complication there. Yeah, it's a l- small note. Uh, someone tried to assassinate me at it's my, during my first It's enough to try game. to remember the defensive scouting <laughs> reports. Know. You know, it's... Hermione is sure it is Snape, who she sees looking at Harry unblinkingly, muttering something under his breath. She sneaks over and, under the stand, sets his robes afire with blue flame. And then... Harry's able to regain control of his broom. Correlation does not equal causation, kids. And, of course, grab the snitch. Or bite the snitch? Or nearly swallow the snitch? It's a fateful moment, yes. which will be important later. And the legend of Potter grows in Hagrid's hut over some strong tea, the keeper of the keys and grounds, and not any secrets. <laughs> Let's slip that the three-headed dog, who he has named Fluffy. Mm-hmm. Fluffy. Sure, fits. Fluffy. It fits. Very short coat on the dog also. (laughs) Not fluffy in any way. Is his, and that he lent him to Dumbledore to safeguard something involving Nicholas Flamel. What could it be? I don't know. Maybe the only thing that Nicholas Flamel is famous for? (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 12. Yes. The Mirror of Erised, a signature chapter in the entire series. Guys, the holiday season is here. And as the weather outside turns chilly, the search Ooh. for information on Nicholas Flamel is heating up. Yeah. <laughs> Harry, Hermione, and Ron have spent the last days and weeks searching Hogwarts' vast library, the parts they can get to at least, right. for mentions of Flamel, but to no avail. During one of these extracurricular study sessions, Harry wanders over to Let's the restricted section. There's just a rope. Just, yeah. It's just a rope. Look, Gentleman's agreement, I guess, not yeah. to go in. Where books containing dangerous dark magic are kept. He's quickly shooed away by Madame Pince, the librarian, who's probably looking for Filch. Yeah. Gotta think those two are romantically involved. Something going on there. (laughs) Over Christmas break, Ron teaches Harry wizard chess, which is just chess, except the pieces move themselves according to the player's command. And, uh, you know, they trust Ron. Harry hasn't earned it yet. Christmas morning arrives and Harry awakens to a surprise. Gifts? By his bed? Who am I, Dudley Dursley? What is going on here? (laughs) Among these are a wooden flute from Hagrid, a 50 pence piece from the Dursleys, and an invisibility cloak. An invisibility cloak. What? 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 That night, Harry slips on the cloak and heads to the restricted section. 
screaming book alerts Filch and Harry flees, inadvertently discovering the mirror of Erised. He gazes into it and sees his parents, his family. Next night, Harry shows Ron the mirror, but Ron sees something very different himself as head boy and Quidditch hero. Harry visits the mirror again. He can't stop thinking about it. He's consumed. And on that third visit, Dumbledore, who crucially does not need a cloak to be invisible. What a flex by my guy also to say that. (laughs) What do you think? I need a cloak? Come on. Is waiting. And Dumbledore explains that the mirror shows people the deepest desire of their hearts. He tells Harry that the mirror will soon be moved and warns him not to seek it out, but goes out of his way to note that should Harry come across it again, you know, now he'll be ready. He'll understand how it works, what it does. When Harry asks what Dumbledore sees in the mirror, the headmaster says he sees himself holding a pair of thick woolen socks. Bum, bum, bum. Chapter 13, Nicholas Flamel. Sparked by his experience with the mirror, Harry begins having a recurring nightmare in which his parents disappear in a flash of green light as a high-pitched voice laughs. Quidditch, though, keeps him occupied. Gryffindor needs a win against Hufflepuff. The next match to go tops in the House Cup. Small problem, Snape, who Harry and his friends believe is trying to kill Harry— is scheduled to referee. How'd Minerva allow this? That's, come on, where is she? <laughs> In the common room one day, Harry offers Neville a chocolate frog, and boom, he remembers where he heard a flamel on the train. That frog trading card. It reads, Dumbledore is particularly famous for his defeat of the dark whistle Grindelwald in 1945 for the discovery of the 12 uses of dragon blood and his work on alchemy with his partner, Nicholas Flamel. This leads Hermione to the discovery that Flamel is the only known maker of the Sorcerer's Stone, a substance which can turn any metal into gold and make its owner immortal. Ah! Flamel himself is over 600 years old. Useful. Yeah. What must your joints feel like at that age? Well, yeah. I'm 31. I can barely stand. <laughs> Match day arrives, and the stadium is packed. Even Dumbledore is he's there. Got, he's got some galleons riding on this. <laughs> He's backing McGonagall, (laughs) backing her fly. Huge relief for Harry, who had been very worried about Snape's refereeing, but knows that no harm will come to him if Dumbledore is there. Good beginning of Harry's belief (laughs) that no harm can come to him while Dumbledore is there. In the early moments of the game, with the crowd and Snape looking on, Harry catches the snitch. It is the fastest snitch grab. Anyone can remember. Gryffindor rises to the top of the table. Later, Harry spies a hooded figure. Snape. Heading for the Forbidden Forest, Harry naturally hops back on his broom and follows. He overhears Snape and Quirrell having a uh, heated discussion about getting past Fluffy. Snape threatens Quirrell and strides off. Harry tells Ron and Hermione about what he thinks he saw. Snape trying to force Quirrell to help him steal the stone. Chapter 14, Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback. Weeks pass. It seems to our trio that Quirrell is... Managing to resist Snape. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are in the library one day when Hagrid comes by. No shots, guys, but why is Hagrid in the library? Listen, loves to read. (laughs) Does he? Loves to research dragons and loves to read. He's acting weird and he's hiding something and he asks the kids if they are still researching Flamel. Ron tells him, nah, I mean, we find out about all that stuff. And, you know, with Flamel, the sorcerer stone. Hagrid, alarmed, shushes Ron and tells the kids to come to his hut later The kids go to see what he's been looking up, and they realize Hagrid's been looking up books about dragons. Sure enough, later, they find that Hagrid does have a dragon egg, which he apparently won playing cards. Hermione, helpful as always, points out that dragons breathe fire and you live in a wooden house. (laughs) Later, Malfoy overhears the trio talking about the egg. They're as bad at secret keeping as Hagrid is. Guys. 
He follows Whisper. He follows them to Hagrid's and, through a gap in the window, witnesses the hatching. Surely he plans to dime them all out. Meanwhile, the dragon, named Norbert, will soon be beyond Hagrid's ability to control. Something must be done about this beast. The kids, and Hagrid, decide to reach out to Ron's older brother, Charlie, who is... Working with dragons in Romania. Ah, handy. Yeah. Weeks after the egg is hatched. So it's a plan to get rid of dear sweet Norbert. Wonderful. Sneak him up to the tallest tower at midnight on Saturday where Charlie's associates, good pals, really nice friends, go grab an illegal dragon. Do me a a solid and go pick up an illegal dragon from my brother and his friends (laughs) at Hogwarts. That's a long flight to Romania. Anyway, you don't want to be adding extra pit stops. Really kind to them. Things go quickly sideways when Malfoy comes into possession of one of Ron's books. He takes it from Ron, in which Ron has carelessly stashed the letter outlining this entire scheme. Ron is in the hospital wing, but lucky for them, Harry and Hermione still have that invisibility cloak. And while Ron is recovering from Norbert's bite, (laughs) Harry and Hermione sneak up to see Norbert off. But... In their careless celebration, they leave the invisibility cloak atop the tower and it's are invisible. caught. <laughs> it's invisible. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just saying. And are caught by Filch. Whoa, we are in trouble. Onward, Jason. Yes, I have a powerful kind of ache inside me. Oh no, half joy, half terrible sadness, also possibly hunger. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 11 through 14 of Sorcerer's Stone is longing. Ah, longing. Chapter 11, Quidditch. Harry's heart has been full of fierce desires. Growing up alone, uncared for, he craved the love of parents, the companionship of friends, a place in the world. And now, cast into this new world, already shouldering the expectations of his celebrity— He longs for a chance to make a name for himself independent of any preconceived notions. And like any precocious 11-year-old, armed with the certainty of youth, he longs for something else. Proof that he's right! (laughs) Harry's vendetta against Snape is raging on. Now, when Harry sets off to ask Snape to return the copy of Quidditch Through the Ages that Snape confiscated from Harry. You're a teacher. Are you supposed to be facilitating reading with your students or not? I don't understand this whole thing. Also, Library books out on the grounds doesn't seem that big. Also, like, can we have, did we know about this? I, I don't know. Is it a real rule? Do we think it's bullshit? I don't know. Harry witnesses something from the book. A horrible scene met his eyes. Snape and Filch were inside, alone, kissing. No, <laughs> no. just Snape and Filch were inside, alone. <gasps> But no, sweet listeners, this is not a fan fiction prompt. In Harry's mind, the latest incontrovertible evidence that Snape is up to no good. Harry spies Filch attending to Snape's mangled leg as Snape discusses the three-headed dog, which clearly wounded him. When Snape spots Harry, Harry scampers off, all thoughts of the book forgotten, consumed as he is by the desire to share his latest theory with Ron and new bestie Hermione, Snape, Harry believes let in the troll on Halloween to create a diversion that would allow him to get whatever is hidden beneath the three-headed dog. Hermione thinks, Harry, you're crazy. But Ron thinks Hermione, blinded by her belief that all teachers are saints, is wrong. It makes no difference to Harry. He's sure, and his desperation to find proof to support his assertion begins to take root. The good news for Harry is that Hermione comes around to his way of thinking quite quickly. The bad news is that happens because she's pretty sure Snape tried to kill Harry during Harry's first Quidditch match. Somebody definitely did. 
this is one of the rare sections of a chapter that shifts away fully from Harry's narration. And we're really with Ron and Hermione and Hagrid in the stands. And they're watching as Harry's shiny new Nimbus 2000 is trying to buck him off. And Hagrid tells Ron and Hermione nothing but powerful dark magic can interfere with a broomstick. This isn't something a kid could do. And Hermione and Ron spy Snape quote, muttering nonstop under his breath. We will come to learn, of course, that Snape is muttering frantically because he's trying to save Harry. And by the way, like, where are all the other teachers here? Is Snape the only one trying to save Harry? What is going on here, guys? Your students are about to be killed in midair. But in that moment, Hermione is sure that she is seeing a jinx attempt in action, and she makes her way to Snape's stand. And this is a great bit of groundwork laying by JKR here. Quote, she didn't even stop to say sorry as she knocked Professor Quirrell headfirst into the row in front. Those are the kinds of lines where when you look back and return to the text, you understand that Hermione actually did disrupt the teacher who was jinxing Harry. It was Quirrell, not Snape. Expert technique here showing how Hermione disrupts Quirrell without actually making Quirrell the focus of this gambit. And Hermione, she's full of longing in this moment too, a longing to save Harry's life. She finally has a friend. Killing him, die in his first Quidditch match. That's not going to work. And so she sets fire to Snape's robes. Think about how much has happened to Harry in just a few months, okay? Found a place in the world, discovered the truth about his family, felt the true joy of being good at something that people consider cool. That last part is important. You could be good at something that people don't like at all. And now, yes, he's an 11-year boy and someone's trying to kill him. This is frightening, right? But also, is it not validating? Does it not prove to him... I am important in some way, or else why would people be trying to kill me? Right. Now into this thirst to pin the blame on Snape. Hagrid, who's using the word rubbish a lot. Quite a bit. This is rubbish. Rubbish, 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 rubbish. <laughs> Dropping teapots and expressing sincere horror that Harry, Ron, and Hermione know about the three-headed dog who we learn <laughs> in classic Hagrid fashion named Fluffy. Hagrid's life is guided by desire, too, and one of his is to put all of his trust in Dumbledore. That means believing in Dumbledore's establishment. And so Hagrid, who lets slip that he lent Fluffy to Dumbledore to guard something, (laughs) whoops, though he won't say what, insists that Snape can't be trying to steal what Fluffy's guarding because, quote, Snape's a Hogwarts teacher. He'd do nothing of the sort. Note, Hagrid's ultimately right, of course. But wrong in the steadfastness that a Hogwarts teacher would never stray. There's, there's going to be many, many, many uh, <laughs> examples of this. The actual would-be thief, Quirrell, is teaching defense against the dark arts and fueling garlic rumors as Hagrid speaks. Tough position, that is. Defense against the dark arts, that is. But Hagrid longs to believe in Dumbledore and Hogwarts because Dumbledore has put so much trust in him. This will be a trend for Dumbledore loyalists going forward, including many of the order who accept Snape because Dumbledore does. Right. And unfortunately for Hagrid, he fails (laughs) fully to convince Harry and co. In part because he carelessly lets slip another clue. You're meddling in things that don't concern you. It's dangerous. You forget that dog and you forget what it's guarding. That's between Professor Dumbledore and Nicholas Flamel. Aha, said Harry. So there's someone called Nicholas Flamel involved, is there? Harry's longing, his desire, his desperation to solve this mystery and pin the blame on Snape won't abate. And it's a little hard to blame him when every time he has a conversation with someone, he gets another tantalizing clue. But let's get to what is undeniably one of our favorite chapters in the entire series and one of the defining chapters in Harry's journey. Chapter 12. The Mirror of Erised. The longing to solve the Flamel mystery 
has gripped our heroes. Christmas breaks in a day, but they can't wait to get to the library. They're looking in every book, right? He wasn't in Great Wizards of the 20th Century or Notable Magical Names of Our Time. He was missing, too, from important modern magical discoveries and a study of recent developments in wizardry and also stuff that happened yesterday in Magic Town. No, and you have to be right younger than 600 years old to right. be in this book. Some great subtle hints here from JKR that the time frames that our heroes are looking at in terms of, like, the books – don't really match up with the time frame of Nicholas Flamel, a guy who's been alive for many, many, many years. So Harry begins, after not being able to find what he needs in the main accessible portion of the library, to suspect that the information they seek might be in the restricted section. But as badly as he longs to go in there, he can't. Students need notes from teachers to gain entrance, and so begins a long and proud tradition of Harry and Ron and Hermione craving access to a secret of the castle, something that they're either not supposed to know about it or aren't supposed to be able to access or try to find. And that tradition is about to get its most essential Happy facilitator. Christmas, <laughs> Maybe one of the two most essential facilitators. Don't want to short the Marauder's sure. map here, but can't really top the cloak. On Christmas morning. Harry and Ron awake to piles of presents. This is a first for Harry, and there's right. a great moment when Ron says, what did you expect, turnips? And oh, naturally, we thought of Roz from those, Game of Thrones. the size of those things. The size of those turnips. <laughs> the final present in Harry's stack? Quote, something fluid and silvery gray that's strange to the touch, like water woven into material. An invisibility cloak and the following note. Your father left this in my possession before he died. It is time it was returned to you. Use it well. A very Merry Christmas to you. And we quickly see that the cloak is the type of object that sparks longing and desire in others. Ron says, I'd give anything for one of these, anything. And this is notable because Ron is from a magical family, has surely seen many magical items. He's got that clock standing in his living room that right. shows the current status and closeness to danger of all of his siblings. He's seen stuff like this before, but this is something, even in that context, Special. Right. You understand right away how exceedingly rare yes. this is. Harry doesn't focus on this yearning from his friend because he's caught up in his own feelings from the book. He felt very strange. Who had sent the cloak? Had it really once belonged to his father? Later we learn, of course, that Dumbledore gave Harry the cloak and that it had, in fact, belonged to his father. Much more on this in time. But for now, consider, use it well. Here, we, like Harry, have one of the many moments when we have to examine Dumbledore's intent. Does he mean tonight? Does he mean for what? Does he mean for this mission vis-a-vis -vis Flamel, vis-a-vis -vis Snape? What does he mean by use it well? Great question. <laughs> <laughs> Dare I say a central question. Yeah. Harry's Christmas is his best ever. He gets presents. He gets a lovely Weasley sweater. <laughs> Fred and George like they're warm. Yeah. <laughs> Put them on. And he gets to enjoy a beautiful meal with the Weasley family, with his friends. But. He cannot stop thinking about the cloak. It is gnawing at him, pulling at him, and his longing to know more about who sent it and why. His father's history with it consumes him. Yes. Never has Harry held something in his hands that connected him to his parents. You know, never has he gotten to feel both the joy and the sorrow that a bridge like that can forge. And the possibilities open up to Harry at once. Yes. He can now explore the castle freely without fear of discovery, without fear of filch, or so he thinks. He can finally go to the restricted section to look for Flamel. Great. Okay, to this point, all of Harry's mischief-making has been a joint job with Ron, and Hermione's obviously joining that fold too. But as he considers in this moment whether to wake Ron, 
Quote, something held him back. His father's cloak. He felt that this time, the first time, he wanted to use it alone. Of course, the first time he uses it, he wants it to be private. He wants it to be personal. And it also gives him a sense of freedom. I think that's, you know, this is a kid who grew up in a cupboard. Right. Now, all of a sudden, he has freedom of the castle. Unlocked. Unlocked. He can go wherever he wishes. He gets to ride a broom that gives him a feeling of movement. What a time for Harry. Harry goes to the restricted section, and he hears faint whispers coming from the books. Quote, as though they knew someone was there who shouldn't be. I love that. It's a small moment, small detail, but it lets you know that these books are alive, that there's a lot of strange things afoot here. When one of them screeches, he knocks. And that's actually a great moment in the movie. Let me just say that. It is. He, he knocks it's over. It's scary. It's really scary. <laughs> he knocks over his lamp in panic and has to flee from Filch, who alerts Snape. Someone out of bed. <laughs> Harry has to hide. Quote, the cloak didn't stop him from being solid, he thinks, in one of what will be many instances of him wondering about the coverage his family heirloom provides. Later in this chapter, Harry and Ron will wonder if it works on cats. Shouts to cats. Miss Norris. You know. Sniffing around. Sniff, exactly. Cats he comes, can always smell. Always. In his flight, he comes upon a classroom with a door slightly ajar. Against a wall, he sees a mirror. Quote, it was a magnificent mirror as high as the ceiling with an ornate gold frame standing on two clawed feet. There was an inscription carved around the top. Erised stra eru oit ub kafru oit on wosi. The mirror of Erised is the most mysterious and haunting magical object we've seen yet. Yes, we have seen the Deluminator and the Remember All, thanks, Gran, and brooms <laughs> and the snitch. And But with all due respect, those things are kind of more like gadgets than an object of true wonder and beguiling danger that the mirror is. When Harry walks up to it, he expects that he'll be invisible. But that is not the vision that greets him. He sees himself, white and scared looking, and many others around him. He wonders if they're all invisible too, if that's the mirror's trick. And then he sees a smiling woman, smiling and crying. And he reaches back to touch her. If she were invisible, she'd be there, quote, but he felt only air. She and the others existed in the mirror. And then he starts to really regard her from the book. She was a very pretty woman. She had dark red hair and her eyes. Her eyes are just like mine, Harry thought, edging a little closer to the glass. Bright green. Exactly the same shape. But then he noticed that she was crying, smiling but crying at the same time. The tall, thin, black-haired man standing next to her put his arm around her. He wore glasses and his hair was very untidy. Stuck up at the back, just as Harry's did. Harry was so close to the mirror now that his nose was nearly touching that of his reflection. Mom, he whispered, Dad? Then he sees what he presumes must be the rest of his family. Join his parents in the reflection. From the book again, Harry was looking at his family for the first time in his life. The potter smiled and waved at Harry, and he stared hungrily, that word hungrily, back at them. His hands pressed flat against the glass as though he was hoping to fall right through it and reach them. He had a powerful kind of ache inside him, half joy, half terrible sadness. And to see Harry regard the mirror is to see him encounter the most basic premise of the series, that life is precious precisely because it ends. And the cost of eluding death, no matter the motivation, no matter how noble the cause, is always too great. Harry absorbed that lesson early. You know, it's just in his bones, literally scarred into his flesh. His heroism flows directly from that knowledge. What elevates Voldemort from the level of a petty villain to something really terrifying is this quest for immortality. He, of course, has his racial purity goal, but that's really a means to an end. He wants to live forever, and he spends the entire series trying to secure his own immortality. He's willing to 
tear his soul literally into shreds to do it. The desire to conquer death leads everyone who attempts it in the series down a dark path. Contrast that to Harry, whom death surrounds. The mirror peers into Harry and shows him the longing in his very heart, his grief over the loss of his parents. They died before he could even know them, and what he did know of their passing was a lie, and now he sees them standing around them. It's agonizing. Mm -hmm. Those descriptions, the word hungrily, the way he's pressing his nose against the glass, you feel he is literally trying to push himself into their arms. And Harry can only tear himself away when a sound brings him back to his senses. He doesn't even know how long he's been standing there looking. And his longing to be able to gaze upon his parents' face again is that all-consuming. He tells Ron about the mirror, and he plans to take him back the next night. But the mirror has a hold on him right away that distance alone can't break. You know, he can't eat. He no longer cares about finding out who Flamel is. And as Harry is wondering to himself whether it even matters if Snape steals whatever Fluffy is guarding. Think about this. The thing yeah. that he has been obsessing over, exactly. he's all, he's, what does this matter? What does it matter compared to just being able to look into my parents' eyes? Ron asks him if he's all right, tells him he looks odd. Little descriptions like that allow you to so fully understand how Harry is sitting, what his expressions are, what he's thinking, how he's feeling. He has already been transported fully by this craving that the mirror unearths in him. And when he and Ron go to try to find the room again that night, and Ron is impatient, and he's cold, and he wants to go back to his bed, we're not just told that Harry says no. We are told that he hisses. Yeah. This is worth thinking about. The Mirror of Erised is one of the most beautifully sad and poignant chapters in the series, but it is also rife with warnings. Who else hisses? Voldemort. Snakes. Those, in other words, who cannot resist the pull and the pursuit of life above all else. And when Harry and Ron finally find the room, because again, Harry will not abandon the quest, Ron can't see anything with Harry standing in front. And so Harry moves to place Ron centered. But then Harry can't see anything. And ah, this makes sense. Perfect sense. Only the looker can see. Because what a private thing. What a private thing. You are looking at the inside of your heart and soul. The mirrors reveal is just for you, unless you choose to share it. And Ron does. He says, I'm older. I'm the head boy. I'm Quidditch captain, holding the house in Quidditch cups. He's drunk right away on the prospect of glory. And he asks, do you think this mirror shows the future? Ron is a kid. He's 11. And what he's seeing transports him too. But that also speaks to the hold the mirror has over yes. you right away because, of course, it doesn't show the future. Ron knows that Harry's parents are dead, but Ron is blinded by what he's seeing. That's all he can focus on. And Harry says, how can it? All my family are dead. The two of them start to bicker. They want to be able to look, yeah. both of them. Quote, don't push me, Ron says as they jostle for view. They're starting to bicker. They're arguing over who gets to look next and for how long. And they're both desperate for a sight of themselves at the center of their dearest dreams. There's a warning in that, in in Harry and Ron's reaction to the mirror and the things they see, the way they begin to argue ever so slightly about that. The power of the reflections torn from the depths of their hearts has the power to strain their friendship if you seek them. The next day, Ron is able to pull free of the mirror's hold quicker than Harry, and this is this will be a theme of the series. Yes. Harry will be able to see Thestrals. Harry will hear voices behind the veil. Harry will be drawn always to the life beyond this life. Ron tries to tell Harry not to go back, saying he has a bad feeling about the mirror mm-hmm. from book. 
But Harry only had one thought in his head, which was to get back in front of the mirror and Ron wasn't going to stop him. He's consumed. It's a very Voldemort-like path for Harry, actually. And who can blame him? He's never known a family and this mirror gives Harry something that his actual life never has. So Harry returns yet again, and this time Dumbledore is there waiting. So you, like hundreds before you, have discovered the delights of the mirror of Erised. Did those hundreds before Harry need the kind of help he needed from Dumbledore? Did they feel the same pull? It's easy to envision anyone being driven mad by seeing their ravenous hunger given form, but it's also easy to imagine that Harry's type of pining is rare. It's pure, and that's what makes it so desperately sad, dangerous, and powerful. Yes, and the inscription that Jason read earlier, if you read it in reverse, if you read the mirror of it, in other words— The inscription says, I show not your face, but your heart's desire. And if not for Dumbledore, Harry might have lost himself in that desire. Dumbledore helps Harry understand what the mirror does, both because Harry needs to know when he meets it again. Again, never lose sight of Dumbledore's grand plan and what that dictates. But also because Harry's personal growth requires gaining this clarity, Dumbledore says. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. You, who have never known your family, see them standing around you. Ronald Weasley, who has always been overshadowed by his brothers, sees himself standing alone, the best of all of them. However, this mirror will give us neither knowledge or truth. Men have wasted away before it, entranced by what they have seen, or been driven mad, not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. He goes on to tell Harry that the mirror will be moved and asks him not to look for it, but makes sure to note that Harry will now be ready should he cross paths with it again, which, of course, he will. And then Dumbledore issues one of the signature lines of the series, saying, It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. Remember that. Think about what he's saying here. This is a very interesting message for a fantasy story, isn't it? It is something I think about a lot because— What is this story? It is a fantasy world. It's a dream that you go into that many people love. But the message here is interesting. Yes, dreams, important to keep those alive, but keep them balanced and don't let them take you from the true magic in your life, which is that you're present alive in every day and every moment of your life. Really, really interesting message to have in a story like this. Yeah, so JKR has written about this a bit on Pottermore. I'll share a little passage from that where she said, Albus Dumbledore's words of caution to Harry when discussing the Mirror of Error said, express my own views. Pull back from that quote for a second. Always interesting to think about which characters reflect the author's personal position most. Dumbledore is clearly an avatar for J.K.R. in, in this instance and in a lot of instances. Again, the advice to, quote, hold on to your dreams is all well and good, but there comes a point when holding on to your dreams becomes unhelpful and even unhealthy. Mm. Dumbledore knows that life can pass you by while you are clinging on to a wish that can never be or ought never to be fulfilled. Harry's deepest yearning is for something impossible, the return of his parents. Desperately sad though it is that he has been deprived of his family, Dumbledore knows that to sit gazing on a vision of what he can never have will only damage Harry. The mirror is bewitching and tantalizing, but it does not necessarily bring happiness, end quote. This is an incredible idea yeah. because one of the draws of fantasy storytelling as a proposition is escape. Yes. A fix-all. Yes. Heal yourself. Heal your pain. And 
one of the things that separates this story so completely and makes it such a true achievement, especially in the context of being targeted at a younger audience and thinking about what these lessons are going to mean for people in their formative years, the idea that magic doesn't necessarily mean erasing your problems, but rather learning how to cope with them and learning what it really means to be alive, that is powerful. Yeah, I mean, we talk about the premise of this story as— You know, it's a story about grief and death and the way magic gives meaning to those things. And at the same time, throughout the book, J.K. is telling us those things are part of life. Right. Magic can give them meaning in some way and give you access to those feelings in a way that can help you. But you can't escape from that pain. And to seek to do that is to go down a path of darkness. Right. So— Think about how this fits into the larger context of Harry interacting with his parents through magic also. You know, this is the first of many times that Harry will see his parents in some sort of magical way here in the mirror. Throughout the series, in moving photos, in Goblet of Fire via Priory Incantatum, in the pensive, in memories, of course, ultimately and most powerfully using the Resurrection Stone in Deathly Hallows, course, every time the Dementors get close to him, he can hear them in his head, all of his recurring dreams. Magic gives him this chance to be with his parents in a way that he otherwise never has and never could, but it also heightens his longing for them, and it heightens the risk that he could potentially choose to live a shadow life among the dead instead of a full life among the living. And that's where those words of caution come into play. That's where that guidance and that strength to be able to say, I choose something else. This is where these themes of choice and life and death intertwine so beautifully. Reminds me of that really heartbreaking conversation that Harry has with nearly headless Nick later on in the series. About serious. He will have gone on. Oof. There's so much insight from Dumbledore here about Harry and Ron and human nature. What is desire? What makes desire personal? Is my desire any more valid than yours? It's all specific to our experiences, our history, the context of our existence. This is another consistently masterful insight that the series provides. Desire is not universal. Harry and Ron are seeing in many ways the exact opposite thing as their sincerest desire, each of them. Right. You know, Harry is wanting something rooted in blood and family, and Ron is like, I want to be known for things. Right. But they both want them equally. When Harry, Ron, and Hermione say in the seventh book that it's obvious which hallow you'd choose, and then they all go on to pick uh, a different yes, object. it's a perfect moment. That's part and parcel with this idea that longing is universal, but the things that we long for are specific to us, and that does not in any way undercut how much we want them. Right. And what Dumbledore explains to Harry helps him understand that, helps him start to process it. And so as his curiosity is peaked and as his mind is opening, he asks Dumbledore, what do you see when you look in the mirror? And this is a famous moment in the books, not only because of how it plays in the present while you're reading this, but because of what it means long term. Dumbledore says, I, I see myself holding a pair of thick woolen socks. Harry stared. One can never have enough socks, said Dumbledore. Another Christmas has come and gone, and I didn't get a single pair. People will insist on giving me books. It was only when he was back in bed that it struck Harry that Dumbledore might not have been quite truthful. Ah, this line always makes me cry. But then he thought as he shoved scabbers off his pillow. Scabbers! (laughs) Scabbers always fucking shit up. It had been quite a personal 
question. There is maybe nothing more personal that you could field to someone as a question than what is the deepest desire of your heart? Can you share that with me? And Dumbledore's decision not to share that with Harry is a through line of the series. When does he offer up information? When does he withhold? What does the fact that people who read this story got to spend years speculating about what Dumbledore actually saw mean for the character and the fandom? And it'll take us seven books to actually learn to glean the truth that Dumbledore sees his family too. This hurts Harry when he starts to realize all of the commonalities between their families and their histories that they could have shared but didn't. You know, what dreams could Dumbledore himself have dwelled on at the cost of forgetting to live? You know, the Hallows, certainly, in his earlier life. His family, presumably when he's looking in the mirror. How does he prevent himself from wasting away before the mirror? We know, we will come to learn over the series, how torn apart he is by his own family history. And... He knows what advice to give Harry because his own personal experience is guiding it. It must be. Chapter 13. Nicholas Flamel. After Harry's experience with the mirror, he begins having nightmares, of course. His parents, their images now, thanks to the mirror, familiar to him, disappearing in a green flash that could only be, he will soon learn, the feared killing curse. Perhaps thinking about it, it's more accurate to call these flashbacks because certainly this is what happened. Thank the gods for Quidditch. Gods! Thank the god love sports, which grounds Harry and helps him find a new purpose away from the kind of more existential questions. Nothing can match the longing the mirror on Earth in Harry, but his desire for Quidditch glory and Slytherin's misery is sincere. What's more, Harry finds that training hard helps keep the nightmares at bay, but there's a rub. Snape. Ah. Snape! <laughs> Referee! What is going on? This is odd. This is perhaps further proof that Snape wants to kill Harry. No, Snape is trying to be close to protect him, but we'll find this out much later. This is certainly part of what helps pull Harry back to the present day concerns. Harry tells Ron and Hermione about his concerns. Hermione tells him, don't play. Say you're ill. Pretend to break your leg. Really break your leg, they say. When Harry hands Neville a chocolate frog to help cheer him up, Neville hands back the card featuring Dumbledore and ba-boom. Aha, remember on the Hogwarts Express when I was reading that card? The reason Harry was sure he'd seen Flamel's name is because of that moment on the Express. When Harry shares this, something clicks for Hermione, too. She runs to fetch a huge book. (laughs) I got this out of the library, she says, uh, for a bit of light reading. Light, Ron says. (laughs) Nicholas Flamel, she whispers dramatically, is the only known maker of the Sorcerer's Stone. This didn't have quite the effect she'd expected. The what? (laughs) Harry and Ron go, oh, honestly, don't you two read? Listen, (laughs) Harry didn't even know he was a wizard until literally like three months ago. They got other stuff going Muggles and magical beings alike might recognize what Hermione goes on to describe as the legendary Philosopher's Stone lore that exists outside of the Potter universe. So this is what Fluffy's guarding. Quote, a stone that makes gold and stops you from ever dying, said Harry. No wonder Snape's after it. Anyone would want it. Interesting. Yeah. Because would Harry? Uh, uh, No, he wouldn't. That's why. He's the worthy hero. That kind of difference in outlook and desire. And at the match, Harry is determined not to let Snape kill him. And or or compromise Gryffindor's chances, almost as important. And he catches the snitch in record time. Quote, he couldn't ever remember feeling happier. He'd really done something to be proud of now. No one could say he was just a famous name anymore. End quote. This is what he wants. This is what he's longing for, too, to earn his own reputation to prove his worth. Later in the series, of course, when the threat of the Dark Lord is intensifying, 
Harry will seemingly be more focused on Quidditch than, you know, keeping Voldy out of his mind. This is infuriating, perhaps, but think about it from Harry's perspective. It makes sense through the lens of Harry's longing. Remember how he felt the first time he flew. This was easy. This was wonderful, the book says. When Harry discovered his place in the magical world, he also discovered that he has to carry the immense weight of other people's expectations. Flying in Quidditch, of course, there's a link to his father. He finds out that his father was also a Quidditch player. But these are his things alone. It's his talent, and it's his undeniable talent alone without any strings, without any attachments or expectations beyond that. And when Harry is walking to put his broom away, he sees a hooded figure, Snape, Uh sneaking off into the forest. And Harry just pops right back on his broom and follows. He is so desperate to catch Snape, has such longing in his heart that he climbs down into a tree to try to eavesdrop, to try to spy. This is misguided to the point of madness. But... He can't help himself. And he sees the quarrel is there, too, and hears Snape grilling quarrel about whether he's gotten past the dog and about his, quote, hocus pocus. Quote, very well, Harry hears Snape say. We'll have another little chat soon when you've had time to think things over and decide where your loyalties lie. Dun, dun, dun. And Harry has reached his deduction. No matter what anybody else says, there's no getting through to him. He's sure. Fluffy is guarding the Sorcerer's Stone, and Snape is trying to force Quirrell to help him get it. Things other than Fluffy, enchantments, are guarding the stone, too. Quote, so you mean the stone's only safe as long as Quirrell stands up to Snape, said Hermione in alarm? It'll be gone by next Tuesday, said Ron. So by now it's more than obvious that Harry and his friends long to uncover Snape's plot. And it's really interesting to kind of understand why, besides the fact that this book would be very, very boring if they didn't. And also besides the fact that the potions master, as far as our heroes are concerned, recently made a very public attempt on Harry's life. There's that stuff. But other than that, why get involved? Do the kids actually think that Dumbledore doesn't have a handle on it? Clearly they do. By the way, he actually doesn't. Voldemort is at the school <laughs> currently. Yes. <laughs> He's there now. Uh, Hagrid thinks this whole thing with Snape is nonsense, and Hagrid clearly has Dumbledore's trust. So what we have here is a bunch of 11-year-olds who think that they're the only ones who see things clearly and believe that only they can outwit fully magically trained adults who are very experienced. And by the way, the stakes of this game are life and death. This feels like hubris, an idealistic hubris that comes from like a a real dearth of life experience, but clearly hubris. So why doesn't Harry just go to Dumbledore or McGonagall and be like, hey, I think Snape's trying to kill me. Here's all this stuff that's happening. Can we talk about this? Why all the sneaking around? Though clearly someone wants him to be sneaking around, right? Right. Uh, Harry doesn't because as uncomfortable as, as he is with his own fame, He longs to understand and also to live up to this. Of course, he wants to be the one who uncovers the plot and defeats the villain, right? Why do Ron and Hermione go along? To this point, we've been thinking about their burgeoning friendship as as something pure, but there's self-interest there as well. Hermione longs to show the world that she knows stuff. Aha, I found out about Flamel. I I know what Flamel is famous for. Ron, as we saw in the mirror, wants to stand apart from his siblings and being close to Harry, a celebrity— can help them reach their goals, as pure and true as the friendship is. I think there's another crucial element there, which is that Harry would never feel at peace if he thought something dangerous was afoot and he didn't do his best to stop it. This is part of what makes him, and and all of them, truly worthy heroes. They're not okay standing idly by and letting other people take action, even if, of course, consulting the adults would be the wise thing to do, even if they must know on some level that they're not equipped for this. It is Harry's nature 
to play the hero. This yeah. is will be a problem for him at many points throughout the series, but he can't help it. It's it's ingrained fully in his being. It's why it's interesting to wonder what would happen if, if Quirrell didn't attack Harry during the Quidditch match. Because it's that moment that really validated Harry's importance to this world on some level within him. Someone's trying to kill me. Why? I must be important in some way if someone is actually trying to kill but me. But I don't think it's the threat to his person that makes him act. Yeah. I think I don't think he'd be he'd be able to overlook what he knows about the Gringotts right. break-in. You know, he hears, no one can break into Gringotts, and then he sees there's a break-in attempt. Like, these are the kinds of things that he is basically not capable of ignoring. It's just his instinct yeah. and his character to respond in kind when he feels that other people are being threatened or that something about yeah. the natural order has been disrupted. Chapter 14, Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback. Love a dragon. Mm -hmm. Harry notices in the ensuing weeks that uh, Quirrell's getting paler and thinner, and yeah, you know, he's got moldy voldy hanging on his head. Gross. Stinking like garlic. <laughs> Quote, whenever Harry passed Quirrell these days, he gave him an encouraging sort of smile, and Ron had started telling people off for laughing at Quirrell's stutter. This is a really classic thing, because the kids have the right idea here about trying to come to the defense of a misunderstood and maligned figure, but of course, they have the wrong guy. And... When Harry, Ron, and Hermione see Hagrid in the library and mention Flamel, the stone, and Fluffy, Hagrid panics, tells them, quiet down, come to my hut, we'll chat later, I'm not going to tell you anything, but swing by, we'll see what happens. And they notice that he's acting shifty, hiding something behind his back, and when Ron goes to explore what section Hagrid just came from, he realizes that Hagrid was looking at a book, at books about dragons. So when they go to visit Hagrid later in his hut, he confirms what they've already pieced together. The stone was the target of the break-in attempt at Gringotts. And they ask him, what apart from Fluffy is guarding the stone? They have this fierce need to know, this yeah. longing that is bordering on recklessness. And Hermione uses this really masterful bit of flattery to ask not what the enchantments are, but who cast them? Who, in other words, aside yeah. from you, Hagrid, dear sweet Hagrid, to stumble to trust enough to get involved? And it works. Of course it works. Hagrid goes on to list the teachers who are helping, including Quirrell and Snape. And the kids freak, Hagrid says. Quote, look, Snape helped protect the stone. He's not about to steal it. Hagrid says that there's not a soul other than him and Dumbledore who know how to get past Fluffy. Ron sees the dragon egg in the fire and asks where Hagrid got it. And clearly this must have cost a fortune. Won it! Hagrid, last night. I was down in the village having a few drinks and got into a game of cards with a stranger. Always want to accept a dragon egg from a stranger. I think he was quite glad to get rid of it, to be honest. Hermione asks how he'll care for it, and he tells them that, hey, I've been reading. Guys, I've been in the library, as you know. Hagrid's affinity for magical beasts, particularly those that he feels are misunderstood, is really a form of longing, I think. Hagrid, of course, straddles two worlds, the giant and the human. And he must see something of himself and the way he's perceived in the way these creatures are perceived. He's half giant. Giants are considered, for good reason, by the way, wild, untamable, <laughs> and brutish. No wonder he should think himself capable of being able to care for a dragon, being able to, through just the sheer force of his love for an animal, bring something out of them that could undercut the violent nature of the animal And itself. that he's a natural advocate for him. Yes, that his instinct always. would be to say, you guys just don't you understand. have it wrong. You've got it wrong. Right. So, of course, now our heroes are stressed about something else as well. Hagrid's going to get busted. Of course he is. Ron says, quote, wonder what it's like to have a peaceful life. Ron. Listen, Ron, <laughs> nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> 
So good. Hagrid sends word via Hedwig that the egg is hatching, but Harry is worried that Malfoy might have overheard. Remember, Malfoy is driven by longing too, the longing to see Harry flat That's out right. on his ass. And when the dragon is born and Hagrid is croaking, isn't he beautiful? And bless him, look, he knows his mommy. Ah. Uh, Hallow's readers will know that Norbert is actually a she, Norberta. <laughs> and Malfoy does, in fact, see Hagrid. This is tough. Dude, buddy, pal. He's a naive, You're hatching giant an illegal dragon. Come on. Pull the blinds all the way shut. Don't leave a gap in the curtain. Come on. You got to do better than that. You've just got to. So the kids convince Hagrid to let them send an owl to Charlie Weasley, asking him to take Norbert. But before Charlie's friends can come fetch Norbert, Ron gets spitten, and it's a bad bite. From the book. When it bit me, he told me off for frightening it. And when I left, he was singing it a lullaby. <laughs> and then, of course. This is how I am with Halo, by the way. Like, <laughs> if he bit you, it's your fault. Right. Now let me As sing my to hand my angel. turns gangrenous and green. Ah, <laughs> oh, Hagrid, a true pet lover. With Ron in the hospital wing and the book carrying Charlie's reply in Malfoy's possession after a hospital taunting session, Harry and Hermione decide to risk it all. There's no time to get Charlie on the message. Has to be this Saturday. When they're making their way to the tower, they see McGonagall pulling Malfoy by the ear. Malfoy is pleading with her to listen. Harry's got a dragon. Please, we can bust these guys. They're overjoyed. You think McGonagall is going to bust her prize seeker out here on the streets? No. They're overjoyed, Hermione says. Malfoy's got detention. I could sing. <laughs> Harry, don't. <laughs> but in their longing to get rid of Norbert without a hitch and to celebrate Malfoy's demise, there is, in fact, a hitch. From the book, as they stepped into the corridor, Filch's face loomed suddenly out of the darkness. Well, 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 he whispered. We are in trouble. <laughs> they left the invisibility cloak at the top of the tower. Mal. Yeah. It's hard to stop the muggles from noticing us. If we're keeping dragons in the back garden anyway, can't tame dragons. It's dangerous. You should see the burns Charlie got off the wild ones in Romania. So please keep that in mind. And please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads. Will it fit us? Yes, I believe it will. And lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about dragons. Ah, dragons! A staple of fantasy stories and games so synonymous with the unknown that the phrase, here be dragons, rose from the practice of putting the winged, fire-breathing beasts and other mythical creatures in uncharted portions of maps. To the muggles in Harry Potter, a dragon might as well be those cartographer's sketches. Nothing more. Harry's not a muggle, of course, but he did grow up in a muggle home. And though he believed Hagrid quick enough when Hagrid told him that dragons are rumored to be guarding the high security vaults at Gringotts, Harry is still taken aback when, after Hagrid's library browsing sparks some dragon-centric discourse, Ron shares the following intel. Dude, there are wild dragons in Britain. Harry shares, in turn, that Hagrid told him he's always wanted a dragon, and Ron replies the really only way his upbringing in the wizarding world would allow him to. But it's against our laws. Ron tells Harry that dragon breeding has been outlawed since 1709 as part of the wizarding community's effort to remain cloistered. As Ron says, quote, It's hard to stop muggles from noticing us if we're keeping dragons in the back garden. Indeed. Ron, who maybe knows more about the subject than the average wizard since his older brother Charlie yes. works with dragons in Romania, adds that dragons are untamable to boot, dangerous, feared. Newt's commander in the Ministry of Magic? They agree. In Harry's school book, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, Newt explains that the Ministry's Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures slots beasts into five tiers. 
Class XXXXX, which from now on I will be referring to as Class 5, (laughs) for ease of use, is defined as a, quote, known wizard killer slash impossible to train or domesticate, or as Ron scribbles into the margins of Harry's copy of Fantastic Beasts, quote, anything Hagrid likes. Quite right. Dragons, in case you guys have not guessed, are class five. From Fantastic Beasts, quote, probably the most famous of all magical beasts, dragons are among the most difficult to hide. The female is generally larger and more aggressive than the male. Indeed. Though neither should be be approached by any but highly skilled and trained wizards. Dragonhide, blood, heart, liver, and horn all have highly magical properties. But dragon eggs, listen up, Hagrid, dragon eggs are defined as class A non-tradable goods. Newt then goes on to offer snapshots of all 10 pure breeds of dragon. The Antipodean Opali, the Chinese Fireball, the Common Welsh Green, the Hebridean Black, the Hungarian Horntail, the Norwegian Ridgeback, the Peruvian Vipertooth, the Romanian Longhorn, the Swedish Short Snout, and the Ukrainian Iron Belly. Saying pure there because dragons can interbreed, creating rare hybrids. Yeah, you know, don't tell a dragon who to breed with. Let them do what they want to do. Some of those 10 primary breeds should be familiar to Potterphiles. Norberta, nay Norbert, is a Norwegian Ridgeback. And the four dragons featured in the Triwizard Tournament's first task in Goblet of Fire are the Swedish Short Snout, the Chinese Fireball, the Common Welsh Green, and of course, Harry's Hungarian Corntail. And though it is not specified in the book, the dragon on which Harry, Ron, and Hermione escape from Gringotts in Deathly Hallows is assumed to be a Ukrainian Iron Belly. Fun fact here from Zach Cram regarding Iron Bellies. During the First World War, Newt's commander spent his time working with Iron Bellies on the Eastern Front. While each of the aforementioned breeds boasts specific traits and personality quirks, all dragons in the wizarding world share certain characteristics. They are obviously massive, they are fire-breathing, they are scaled, they are winged, and though they live the world over, they tend to dwell in wilder regions where they can roam free. Dragon reserves help the beasts remain hidden from muggle eyes, and they need help staying hidden because some breeds can grow up to 50 feet tall. Dragons in the Potterverse cannot be domesticated, as Hagrid found out the hard way. And remember, that Gringotts dragon, you might be thinking, well, what about that one? No, not a pet. That dragon was a prisoner, chained and abused, trained to live in fear. I'm really sad now. I know. That part is crushing. Truly crushing. Dragons are extremely difficult to overpower, with half a dozen wizards typically needing to work in concert to stun one. They are, however susceptible to the conjunctivitis curse, as we learned during Goblet of Fire, because their eyes are more vulnerable than their protective hides. The ministry, given a, let's be honest, very feeble desire to protect the species, and given the value of the items in question, closely monitors the sale of dragon-related items, which include dragon blood, the 12 uses of which Dumbledore is famous for discovering, dragon horn and dragon liver, both like the blood very useful in potions. Dragon meat, which Hagrid uses to soothe his grop-induced wounds in Order of the Phoenix. Very gross. And then just lets Fang gnaw on it. Extremely (laughs) gross. Everything about it is gross. You want the nice green tinge in your meat. That's what you want to look for. Dragon eggs, which, as mentioned, are non-tradable and have thus spawned a black market. Looking at you, Hagrid. Come on, dude. Dragon Claw, the powdered form of which some allege works as a brain stimulant. Hermione confiscates a fake version being sold during OWL season in Order of the Phoenix. Dragon Dung, potent fertilizer, highly potent. Dragon Hide, which is used in clothing. Think of it the way muggles use leather. 
The skin is tough, impervious to some spells, and stylish, as Fred and George show us when they wear dragon skin jackets in order and prints. And of course, dragon heart. With dragon heartstrings serving as one of the three substances that Ollivander uses as a wand core, in addition to unicorn hair and phoenix feathers. According to Pottermore, wands that feature a dragon heartstring core tend to be the most powerful, but also the most temperamental. And that's no surprise, right? Dragons are famously volatile creatures. It is no accident that Hogwarts school motto is Draco Dormians Nunquam Tillandis. Never tickle. A sleeping dragon. Never. Now, we could devote an entire podcast to dragons, and maybe one day we will. From actual world history to Dungeons & Dragons to Puff the Magic Dragon to the dragons featured in Beowulf and the Hobbit and Earthsea and countless more stories, dragons are as fundamental to history and legend and lore as a core is to the wand in which it lives. But to conclude, let's very quickly consider this. Hagrid, smitten with Norbert from the moment of his, really her, hatching, says, quote, Bless him. Look, he knows his mummy. And it's fascinating to quickly consider the differences in how dragons are presented in two of our favorite stories, Harry Potter and A Song of Ice and Fire. Hagrid's he knows his mummy line is met with ridicule and befuddlement. The mother of dragons, in contrast, is idolized, deified, in no small part because of her winged, fire-breathing children. In Harry Potter, dragons are ostracized. In Thrones, they are coveted above all else. Why? Well, because they are weapons of mass destruction by which you can conquer the entire known world. So it's really just a matter of perspective, I guess. Do you want to fear the weapon or do you want to use it? Do you want to wield it? Classic Danny. She's like, give me that weapon. Yeah, let's go. I want to conquer. Jason? Yes. We'll have another little chat soon when you've had time to think things over and decide Mm. where your loyalties lie. Wow, very ominous. (laughs) (laughs) Professor, I would never. Until then. Let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from these four chapters, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. Yes. I'll go first. Number one, Harry's first Quidditch match ends thusly. Quote, Harry was speeding toward the ground when the crowd saw him clap his hand to his mouth as though he was about to be sick. He hit the field on all fours, coughed, and something gold fell into his hand. I've got the snitch, he shouted, waving it above his head, and the game ended in complete confusion. He didn't catch it. He nearly swallowed it. Flint was howling. This is a Hall of Fame is Harry lucky or good moment. (laughs) But it is also so much more than that because there are huge endgame implications here. This is the snitch that Dumbledore bequeaths to Harry in Deathly Hallows because Golden Snitches have flesh memories, the manner in which Harry catches this one is actually hugely important. Yes. When Minister of Magic Rufus Scrimshaw hands that snitch to Harry, eager to see, to discover what secret Dumbledore is trying to share, the snitch betrays no confidence as it makes contact with Harry's hand, because, of course, that is not how he caught it. Only later, when Harry presses the snitch to his lips, does it bear the initially impenetrable message, I open at the close, And only when the close arrives does it actually open, giving Harry the hallow that he most covets, the resurrection stone. The ability to take a small detail like this from the middle of book one and make it vital, critically important to book seven is a huge part of why these books deliver, no matter how many times you return to them, and a huge part of why 
we would basically give JKR any vital organ if she needed it Ooh. to continue. This is just masterful. Quickly, a much smaller and much less important note, but something fun related to the mouth catch. We learned that Draco had, quote, tried to get everyone laughing about how a wide-mouthed tree frog would be replacing Harry as Seeker next. Well, Dolores Umbridge, who is regularly described as being toad-like, does replace Harry as Seeker in Order of the Phoenix by kicking him off the team. Ginny ends up replacing him. Oh, shouts to Ginny, the wonderful Ginny. Number two, speaking of massive endgame implications, Dumbledore telling Harry, I don't need a cloak to become invisible. And what a flex that is, by the way. What do you think? I need a cloak, my guy? Come on. <laughs> is an early seed in the blossoming Dumbledore tree of doubt and eventual clarity. In Hallows, Harry finds out upon reading the letter from his mother that he finds in Sirius's room that Dumbledore had taken James's invisibility cloak while James and Lily were in hiding right before they were ultimately killed. Number three. When Neville returns to the common room with the leg locker curse on him and says that he doesn't want any more trouble, Ron is adamant, saying, you've got to stand up to him, Neville. He's used to walking all over people, but that's no reason to lie down in front of him and make it easier. And Neville replies in truly heartbreaking fashion. He says, there's no need to tell me I'm not brave enough to be in Gryffindor. Malfoy's already that's done sad. that. Oh, He's worth, you're worth 12 of him. 12 of him, Come Neville. Come on. 12. <laughs> there are short-term... Short but not as short-term and long-term keys here. One, short-term. At Gryffindor's second Quidditch match, Neville will channel Ron's words and tell Malfoy, I'm worth 12 of you, Malfoy. Then there's that middle ground here later in this book when Harry, Ron, and Hermione go to sneak out of the common room in the climax to attempt to procure the stone. Neville is there. He's been chasing after Trevor, naturally. <laughs> Can we get Trevor in aquarium? Like, Can we get, like, a th why are you just carrying him? Oh, like, something. It's unbelievable. Something. Maybe that bubble that Nagini's <laughs> in at the end, you know? unbelievable. <laughs> and Neville tries to stop them using Ron's own advice against him. And then, of course, third, this is where the not brave enough to be in Gryffindor thread really starts for Neville. And that arc is one of the most satisfying yeah. through lines of the entire story as Neville slowly but steadily disproves that notion standing up to his friends in stone, fighting at the Ministry in Order, pulling the sword out of the Sorting Hat and Hallows and everything in between. Shouts to Neville. I mean, he could have been the chosen one. It was close. Number four, not all foreshadowing has to be for future books. And there's some good end of stone foreshadowing here when we first learn about Ron's prowess at chess, which is a shocker, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> From the book, Ron also started teaching Harry wizard chess. This was exactly like Muggle Chess, except the figures were alive, which made it a lot like directing troops in battle. Ron's set was very old and battered, like everything else he owned. It had once belonged to someone else in his family, in this case, his grandfather. However, old chess men weren't a drawback at all. Ron knew them so well, he never had trouble getting them to do what he wanted. Here's something Ron's really good at, an area where he can be the commander, the knight, and something that will be key for the tasks that await. Another good chess tidbit in this section. Chess was the only thing Hermione ever lost at. This is from the book again. Something Harry and Ron thought was very good for her. Shouts to Ron also for the sacrifice play. that comes later. Spoiler. Later in the book. Spoiler like everything in this podcast. Literally this podcast. Taking one on the chin from the queen. Tough stuff for my guy Ron. Number five. There are some really great Snape foreshadowing nuggets in this swath of chapters. The best one probably is, quote, could Snape possibly know they'd found out about the Sorcerer's Stone. Harry didn't see how he could, yet he sometimes had the horrible feeling that Snape could read minds. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and of course he can. Legitimacy. 
and Harry's failed occlumency. <laughs> Listen, the, the Quidditch season was heating up. <laughs> I understand that the Dark Lord is can get into my head, but you don't understand, like, the cup is like, right there. Cho, very difficult times with we've, Cho. We've got a keeper issue. A few others here. Quote, Harry didn't know whether he was imagining it or not, but he seemed to keep running into Snape wherever he went. At times, he even wondered whether Snape was following him, trying to catch him on his own. Of course, Snape is acting as protector here. We can see this so clearly in hindsight. And how about this one as food for thought? When Harry catches the snitch in record time in that second match, there's a moment where he streaks right past Snape to get it. Snape, who is, of course, actually refereeing the match to make sure Harry doesn't die— basically has to sit there and see a miniature James shooting past him on his way to Quidditch glory. Must have been a very painful moment for dear sweet Severus. Number six. Some great Fred and George gems in these chapters. Don't we really love Fred and George? Aren't they the best? Including the mention that they've bewitched snowballs to follow Quirrell and bounce (laughs) off his turban, meaning they're pelting Voldemort (laughs) in the face with snowballs constantly. Incredible to think about. It's really great. Do you think at any point Voldemort was like to Quirrell, can you you stop them? (laughs) I'm just getting pounded here. Can you take a different (sighs) path? Zig a little, zag a little, the Rick on Stark advice? My feeble servant, can you not stop these? Ah! (laughs) And how about this? Everyone's waiting for you in the common room. We're having a party. Fred and George stole some cakes and stuff from the kitchen. Stole? Unbelievable. Or tickled the pair and kindly asked the house elves to give them goodies. Ah, classic. Never go hungry with Fred and George around. You know how in the Goblet movie there's that incredible moment when Ray finds his Voldemort is like, lies have fed your legend. <laughs> yeah. So I feel about Fred and George in this moment. They're just asking for food. They really are. Building this legend that they're these like slick thieves. Unbelievable. Number seven. Let me ask you a question, yeah, Jay. Let's hear it. If we were at Hogwarts or sure. some sort of school of magic and everyone around us could do magic yeah. and that meant that, again, just to be clear, they could do magic, mm-hmm. how would you feel if I said to you, could you carry every Christmas tree into the Great Hall by hand? Because that's what Hagrid's doing. I think it's a tough look for my guy and I'm not sure why this is, I think it's a little specious, I think. Maybe he likes... Showing off how strong he is? Yeah, like yeah. they're feeling like he's contributing, and he, sure. of course, can't do magic, so he's got to look for ways to get involved. He can't be mom. wielding that pink umbrella in the middle of the Great Hall. Can he? But can't Flitwick just yeah. be like, I got yeah, you, bro? I got bro. you. Let me, let me do this. Put down literally the giant tree you're holding. I know. I'll help you out. Or McGonagall. Like, uh, hold on. No, what? she's busy. Is she? She's scouting the tape. <laughs> he's scouting <laughs> the tape. He's like, who we got? <laughs> who we playing this week? McGonagall. A fucking inveterate gambler. The mirror will be moved to a home tomorrow, Mal. And I ask you not to go looking for it again. Fine. If you ever do run across it, like, say, at the end of this book, you will now be prepared. Because you've prepared me (laughs) deliberately and methodically. That's exactly right. I hope you're also prepared to crown today's winner. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most. Today, we're awarding the House Cup to Harry James Potter. Harry James! The first Harry of James. Many, the first of many for my guy. Harry, of course, in this span of chapters, receives the invisibility cloak, which belonged to his father, will aid his rule-breaking and exploration more than anything else in his time at Hogwarts other than the Marauder's Map, which is also obviously an imperative yes. aid to rule-breaking. And by the way, guys, spoiler, <laughs> even though the whole podcast is spoilers, <laughs> the invisibility cloak is a deathly hallow. Right. This is a big fucking deal. 
He discovers the mirror of Erised, getting a taste of his family, seeing his family for the first time yeah. in a complete context. Not just his mother and father, but people he's never heard about before. That must have been an incredible moment for him. Crucially, he also gets guidance from Dumbledore that prevents him from wasting away before his parents' images. He pieces together who Flamel is, which right. is a big deal. And um, by the way, also just a major mark in favor of regularly consuming candy. Because as long as it has a trading card involved, it's fine. If not for his <laughs> chocolate frog habit, yes. which is getting out of hand, yes. where would he be? Where would we be? And he dominates Quidditch. He's like the Penny Hardaway of Quidditch. No, he, <laughs> he stays healthy. He's like the uh, LeBron James of Quidditch, winning two matches Basically, single-handedly in what is amounts to an illegal scheme that he should not be even playing. I hope one day, years after his tenure, that these records are stripped. <laughs> because this is fucking ridiculous. Oh my God, anyway. I called in front of the NCAA. <laughs> forced to account for basically being the Nevin Shapiro of right. Hogwarts. <laughs> uh, the first one he won while being impeded by an actual assassination attempt. Yeah. And the second one, while breaking the record for fastest snitch catch, we don't know if it's a hard and fast record. It's just no one can remember anyone ever doing it that fast. Right. You listen, when you're ready for the big time, you're ready for the big time. I am the chosen one. (laughs) (laughs) All right, friends. You haven't got a letter on yours. Yeah. We suppose producer Isaac Lee and researcher Zach Cram, without whom we absolutely could not do this podcast, think you don't forget your name. But we're not stupid. We know we're called Mason and Jallery. <laughs> we hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow. Yes, tomorrow, when we will be discussing chapters 15 through 17, the conclusion uh-huh. of Sorcerer's Stone. Mars is bright tonight. <laughs> Until then, remember, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to pod. It's Mick G. Give me 500 on the... Shh, 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 hold on. Hold on. Yeah, yes, yeah, I'll be there. Okay. Um, give me uh, 500 on uh, on Gryffindor. You got to see this kid. He's, he's freaking incredible. Uh, I'm telling you, it's like we're going to clean up. Yeah, and lay some of that action in the Bahamas as well, on the Bahamas account. Yeah. I'm thinking two snitch grabs. Yeah, yeah. I'm serious. He's 11. <laughs>